everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of MMI Podcast, Taboos Broken Through Honesty. Alexa here, and I hope all of you are doing well. I'll be co-hosting this episode with my colleague Xiaoying. Hello, Xiaoying. Hi, Alexa, and our fellow audience. Alright, so today we'll be talking about augmented babies. We are honoured to have with us Professor Maud, who is a professor of human genetics at Monash University, Malaysia, where she trains undergraduates, graduates, faculty members and supervisors academics in the Jeffrey Chia School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Aside from that, Professor Mott is also an avid researcher in human population genetics and health, with special focus on indigenous and underprivileged communities. In addition to doctoral training in Cambridge University, over the years she has trained in molecular immunology, transplantation matching, genomic medicine at the University of Oxford, University of Western Australia, American Society for Histocompatibility, UC San Francisco, Welcome Genome Campus Houston and Bioethics at the Monash Bioethics Center. It's really a pleasure to have you here with us today. Welcome Prof, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you very much, Xiaoyun and Alexa. I'm very glad to be on this podcast today. Alright, let's get the ball rolling then. First Prof, could you explain to us what does the term augmented baby or better known to most people as designer baby mean? Alright, so I actually think the term designer baby is rather strange and misleading. However, it seems to be catchy and and quite appealing to the general public. And and I've got these thoughts in mind for several reasons. Now, if you think about it, the term designer baby, and I would use this in inverted commas, doesn't really make much sense. because it gives the impression that you probably can design babies from scratch. Like you could do with a piece of clothing by a designer, you know, Dior or Chanel or a handbag by Hermes or even, you know, a computer by Apple. Now a baby or a human being, of course, is certainly more complex than a handbag, right? Or a piece of designer clothing. And most of the building blocks of living biological systems, humans included, are already predetermined to a great extent. So it's not really designing from scratch. And the material that is used isn't that simple, at least not yet anyway. So given these things, um, I prefer the term augmented baby. And I will use this terminology uh, for the duration of this podcast. So, so to put it in a nutshell, very quickly, what we've really managed to do with recombinant DNA technology, uh, which is the basis of genetic engineering, including uh, biomedical uh, methods such as in vitro fertilization or IVF for short, since the 1990s actually, is to augment or actually change pieces of DNA. And by doing that, we can correct for harmful mutations that might be present in selected genes. And this can be done either at the gamete level in the sperm or the ovum itself, or at the embryonic level. And therefore, uh, from parents that might have had mutations, uh, it this technique actually permits the birth of a normal, healthy, augmented baby. So this baby's DNA was augmented or changed, if you like, by human agency 
and it would not have occurred by natural means if, if we follow the normal reproductive biology. Um, there have been several examples of, of these sorts of babies that were possible using uh, genetic engineering or gene therapy. And I remember during my PhD studies in the early 1990s, I was very excited to read about a very exciting breakthrough. And this breakthrough was achieved by uh, Dr. French Anderson. And in 1990, it was reported that a little girl, um, and at that time she was uh, four years old, and her name was Ashanti De Silva, and she was the first recipient of gene therapy. So what happened was that uh, Ashanti suffered from adenosine deaminase deficiency, okay, and this is a specific enzyme, and it led to a rare immune system deficiency that is caused by the lack of this adenosine deaminase. And patients who have um, ADA are susceptible and defenseless against numerous diseases and infection. And oftentimes they actually die before their first birthday. So this is a genetic defect. Gene therapy in the form of genetic engineering was used by uh, French Anderson and his team to actually treat Ashanti de Silva's disease and save her life. So essentially, uh, doctors Friend Anderson, Michael Blaze, I think that's the way you pronounce it, and, and Kenneth Carl were actually able to inject uh, this four-year-old girl with genetically engineered white blood cells to strengthen her immune system. So uh, for years after that, uh, she still had to receive some infusions of gene therapy to make sure that her enzyme levels were maintained. And it was a first in the, in the world of genetic engineering to actually deliver a therapy that was not available by any other means or any other medical procedure. So this test case, if you like, a very successful case, if you like, showed that the use of gene therapy was a viable option uh, in medical treatment. And since the 1990s, uh, gene therapy and similar types of therapies uh, where you augment or change DNA has been important for, for further research in genetic engineering and also applications in uh, clinical medicine. Well said, Paul. That sounds fascinating. I bet most of us did not know gene therapy was already accomplished 30 years ago. Prof, what are the methods that can be used to create an omitted baby? The most common gene editing technology that we have heard about is CRISPR-Cas9. Could you share more about it with us? Sure. Um, CRISPR, we have to thank uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 for bringing this types of technology to the knowledge of the public. It's the most recent one. But if we go back um, in the development of these techniques for gene therapies or gene editing technologies, there are several that can be used to correct for defective genetic mutations by editing or sort of changing the mistakes in the DNA. So uh, from uh, French Anderson's work 30 uh, years ago, um, how he achieved this was by transplanting recombinant DNA molecules with normal version of the ADA gene 
into Ashanti de Silva, the four-year-old girl I talked about. And this particular technique at the time uh, depended on homologous recombination to take place between the uh, recombinant molecule that carried the normal sequence of the gene and her own DNA, which contain the mutations. And by this homologous recombination process, the, the mutations in Ashanti's DNA were corrected. Now, since those decades ago, um, various techniques have been improved and been developed. And these techniques very much rely on the use of specific enzymes, uh, which can cut DNA, which we call DNA editing nucleases. Right? And the techniques have grown in such a way that it is a bit more precise and more targeted. Now coming to CRISPR-Cas9, uh, this was a system originally discovered in bacteria um, and, and it functions in bacteria, if you like, like a primitive immune system where bacteria are able to use CRISPR-Cas9 to actually cut the DNA of invading viruses. And, and that is very good because it actually protects the bacteria against viral infection. So this is a very fundamental um, mechanism in prokaryotic cells and it was discovered in, in the earlier days um, in the research laboratories of uh, Dr. Jennifer Doudna and Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier. Uh, so far, uh, it is the most precise and most user-friendly gene editing tool that we have so far, right? So um, in 2014, uh, both these, these scientists, women scientists, were awarded a special prize called the Breakthrough Prize in an award ceremony in, in the US, right? So if we look at the types of gene editing technologies uh, from the early days of homologous recombination, uh, it was further developed to have something called talens, T-A-L-E-N, then zinc finger nucleases, ZFN, and finally the CRISPR-Cas9 that we are talking about that is very popular these days, right? So from 2015-2016 onwards, the world became very enamoured with the trendy CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, in terms of the technology and the almost limitless possibilities that it could be used for. And this system was specially profiled at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2015. And that represents a first for a recent biological breakthrough. So it highlighted the signs as well as uh, speculated on the potential health and economic benefits that could be derived from gene editing um, in the current time and also in the future. Having said that, the global biomedical community, including the World Health Organization, various health ministries, medical programs in various countries, and also various agencies, um, continue to advocate for responsible and also judicious use of gene therapy. And this is something that uh, should not be done lightly. Um, it should be something that is done uh, with a lot of expert ability and regulatory oversight. OK, 
okay? And uh, we are of the view um, that gene therapy and gene editing uh, should only be used to deal with serious diseases and disability. And the guidance is when there is no reasonable alternative or existing therapies that exist, all right, to treat uh, diseases today. Yes, I see. I can imagine many ethical concerns that might come with this technology. As a medical student, I think our group should advocate for the same regulations as well. Thank you, Prof. That gave us a clear understanding of CRISPR-Cas9 and what came before it. So moving on, something that rocked the world in 2018 was regarding a scientist from China by the name of He Jianhui. He took the first step in creating an augmented baby by using CRISPR to engineer twin girls whose DNA was designed to resist HIV. Although his attempt was not successful, this was faced with criticism from most people and he was deemed a rogue scientist, China's Dr. Frankenstein and a mad genius. Ultimately, he had his research suspended and none of his research papers regarding the incident were published. What is your opinion regarding this, Prof. Mod? Right, okay, so I guess uh, the world also has uh, um, rightfully or wrongfully to thank uh, Dr. He of China for actually carrying out this uh, very bold and rather outrageous um, experiment. Um, and I've always believed that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing and not necessarily good. Uh, personally, I, I think He Jianhui has or had very poor understanding of genes, uh, of human biology and medical ethics when he performed those gene editing experiments and implantation which led to the birth of the Chinese twins who, who were named subsequently Lulu and Nana. Uh, so I actually don't know why uh, or who called him a mad genius. Uh, it's certainly a little bit mad and highly opportunistic. Uh, maybe it's more appropriate. Uh, I don't see any evidence of genius in actually what he did. So her claim to have worked with uh, bona fide biologists in the USA, he claimed to have had collaborators, but uh, from, from the publications and some of the appearances on, on media, um, be it in the articles in scientific journals or in television appearance and YouTube and all that, uh, they have denied that they encouraged him to proceed with the gene editing activities that he has described and, and done in China, right? So it's something that, that has got quite a lot of information. And last year, I was um, privileged to actually be invited to a meeting um, which was formed part of the specialist lectures for the Masters of Bioethics course, which uh, was run by Johns Hopkins University and University of Malaya. And um, what we, I did was actually dissected He Jianhui's claim um, of curing, um, or rather making the twins um, resistant to HIV and subsequently resistant to AIDS. So from, from the literature and from what was published, uh, what he did was he appeared to offer this um, experiment that he did to couples with HIV a chance to have a child that was protected from HIV. 
through uh, in vitro fertilization and also gene editing of the CCR5 receptor protein. All right. So these people were recruited through a Beijing-based AIDS advocacy group. And what was actually done was to actually generate 11 embryos from couple that were used in six implant attempts, five of which failed and only one succeeded. And it was the one that resulted in a twin girl's pregnancy uh, of, of these babies, Lulu and Nana. Now, some tests apparently had suggested that the first twin had both copies of the CCR gene altered or edited, and the other twin had one copy altered. Now, a lot of this is, is very, very difficult to verify because we don't actually see the publications for ourselves. And, and you know, there are all sorts of reasons for this. Maybe it's secrecy, maybe the experiments weren't actually done very well. Uh, but uh, various experts, including George Church and Masunoru, uh, also gave their comments. So how do we respond how did we respond or how did I respond to He Jianhui's announcement uh, that was done at a meeting in Hong Kong previously? Uh, I, think, I think my view is that it is a sort of a gung-ho maleficence. It goes against the bioethical principle of do no harm. So, so I, I would call it gung-ho maleficence and gung-ho because of the very little knowledge he possessed about genes and biological systems. So while these claims, as I mentioned, have not been verified, it's very difficult to get proper literature and publications about this. And of course, as you've said, there are no proper publications and his research was suspended uh, for various reasons, obvious reasons. Um, there are legitimate scientific concerns that I have. The first concern is about editing CCR5, right? So CCR5 is just one of the proteins that the HIV uses to actually enter cells, all right? But there are other mechanisms that HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, can actually enter human cells. There are at least five other mechanisms, right? And this is just one of them. So even if it was 100% successful that the CC5 mutation was edited and corrected, it will not really prevent HIV infection because as I mentioned, this is not only this is not the only route that the virus can use. Now, secondly, while these there are also um, no gains in terms of HIV protection, right? Because it's not a hundred percent, it's just one of the mechanisms. Yet the twins were exposed to unknown safety risks. And, and the, the problem with CRISPR-Cas, even to this day, is that there are still some safety issues that surround the CRISPR-Cas9 technology in terms of precision of editing and in terms of the stability of the edited DNA, right? We have also to ask this question, what was his real motive to test human embryo editing. What was the real motive behind it, rather than just avoiding HIV, which we know now, and if you know anything about the science of HIV, this, this whole concept about protecting the twins against, age, uh, against AIDS just falls apart, okay? Because we know that individual genes do not act on their own, and they interact with other biological processes and molecules within cells. 
Now, the fifth problem with this, with what he did, uh, which is um, really, is that CCR5 has various functions in the cell. It is not just existing there for HIV to infect cells. Surely it has various functions. And we know now that disrupting its function can result in a host of other problems. Okay, so CCR5 uh, is very useful for all sorts of functions from signal transducer activity to chemokine receptor activity to defense responses to immune responses and so on. And therefore, if you actually disrupt CCR5 to remove it in the system, then you're going to have problems with susceptibility to infections. For example, to West Nile virus, susceptibility and even death from influenza. It may even result in apoptotic failure. Apoptosis, as you know, is programmed cell death. So, so one molecule, uh, one protein, can have myriad functions. And just to say, or just to be thinking so simply and so erroneously, that removing that protein will address the issue of removing HIV infection and AIDS is severely misinformed and, and ignorant. I see. Alright. It seems like another problem with gene editing is to avoid side effects that might come with it. So it's true that even though our human genome is already fully sequenced, we still do not know what the function of all the genes are. So even though creating an augmented baby isn't part of societal norms yet, is the cost of doing so known? I actually do not know, to be honest. I'm not really sure anyone knows the total cost of, of what he did um, in terms of creating or rather, you know, um, leading to the birth of the twins um, because the costs have to account for several things okay number one is oftentimes they are not published in the public domain so there is no way we can actually get uh, accurate figures for this and when you talk about costs you have to actually add lots of costs for different aspects firstly the cost for the lab the equipment use the consumables that are used for this technology were there any fertility treatments that had to be performed uh, to the women who are involved? Uh, is there gamete selection? Um, how much is that? You know, what are the procedures that are involved? Is there hospitalization? What about delivery? What about training uh, the staff to do these techniques? Uh, what about medical staff? What about manpower? And so on. So it is not something that can be actually costed quite easily. But I would say that all of that would add up to costs that are very substantial. Alright Prof, we have talked about how to create these omander babies. Now here comes another interesting part. What are the implications of human germline modification and what would it mean to have omander babies? Is it possible to have black-made humans with superhuman traits, maybe enhanced hearing or sight? Well, uh, I think that these are all things that are very um, interesting to imagine and um, people like to have these thoughts about superhumans and we like to be inspired by watching the X-Men and all these things, which are really exciting, which are actually stretching the human imagination in various frontiers. But so far, I think uh, most of this exists in comics and anime and manga and Hollywood and the entertainment industry, uh, you know, so far. Uh, so in terms of the biotechnology, we're, we're not there yet 
not by a long shot, but but who knows? Maybe in in the future,、uh, some of these will come to pass. All right. What about intelligence or athleticism? Do you think we're able to produce a baby who will be better at gymnastics than Simone Biles, or an individual whose intelligence is on par with Einstein?、Uh, the genes are probably unknown and polygenic, but is there a need to worry? Okay, Alexa. Now you talked about intelligence and athleticism and all these other traits, which are, as we know, polygenic and also multifactorial. And this is where environmental factors such as diet, upbringing, family relationships, hygiene, medical care, nutrition, education, and so on, are very important to actually form such individuals. Right? I would not be too worried just yet with the science and the, the technology per se.、Um, there is still so much we do not understand, even with seemingly simple single gene disorders or known conditions. Right, so so that's having said that, I'm more concerned about issues of human greed, of ignorance, of insensitivity, of arrogance and bad signs and unethical behaviors. Right, that's that's very much more concerning, and also the reluctance of of people who know better to actually expose and call out some of these.、Um, Bad practices, right, and and very unethical behaviors. That's right, Prof. Our main concern should be, as you mentioned earlier, Prof. I have a question. Does this go against Darwin's natural selection theory, and is this a good thing? All right. Now, Darwin's theory of natural selection works very, still is working、uh, on on wild populations, right? Populations that have not had the benefit. Or, or the horror of man's manipulation, right? So you will still have natural selection operating um, in, um, as I say, wild populations, whether they are animals or plants、uh, or organisms, you know, microbes. As long as humans stopped hunting and gathering and started domesticating plants and animals, maybe ten thousand years or so ago, we have affected unnatural selection. Right, more so with medi- modern medication and technological advancements, humans are now living longer. We have pills and procedures for various ills, and we have become architects of our own destinies. And therefore, we are depending less and less on natural selection and affecting our own、um, na- unnatural selection. It seems like we're already the product of generations of designing and augmenting, in a way. All right. Now regarding the legislation side of things, I saw that the U.S. has banned turning gene-edited embryos into babies. Most countries have not yet legislated on genetic modification in human reproduction, but of those who have, all have banned it. Should we have more in-depth discussions about this involving other stakeholders, such as the general public or the parents, and not just the scientists? What's your opinion on this, Prof? Well,、um, we we know for a fact that science and technology often move ahead of LC. Okay, and LC being ethical, legal, and social implications. So yes, of course, we need to have dialogue. We need to realize and map what's happening on the scientific front, and we need to see where the LC parameters、uh, are in place. 
Now, rules can be made up, of course. You know, we're always making up rules. But rules which are bad and not properly enforced and based on, on uninformed or inaccurate science are only made to be broken. Right? So I would certainly advocate ongoing discussions at international and also at national fronts. Um, and, and we have to be we have to realize that a lot of these uh, policies and regulations can be driven by a variety of things such as resources, such as markets, whether people want these or not, whether they can afford these technologies or not, and also the capability of people in different countries to actually uh, do these technological advances is very much capacity driven. Well say Paul, one of the biggest issue people have with Omerton baby is that it raises safety and ethical concerns. People often relate Omerton babies with nature versus nurture. In your opinion, should parents be permitted to enhance their children? And as most people think that it's not a natural selection, is it against religion? Um, right. So yes, of course, it is not natural selection. This is actually unnatural um, manipulation in a sense, right? And and in my opinion, uh, people who think verse nature versus nurture, um, very much thinking in terms of the past, and and it is always nature and nurture. It is never versus, right? Because this is where trouble begins. Now, regarding the question that should parents be permitted to enhance their children, I feel it, it all depends on personal choices, right? Versus what the state permits or what they can afford. And the biomedical fraternity is, I hope, um, usually guided by the four bioethics principles, right? Which is autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and also justice. Now, in terms of religion, it may not be necessarily against religion to actually um, select for babies that we want or children who are free of disease. It all depends on which religion or belief system a person subscribes to. The problem now that has to be addressed is the safety of genetic editing. That, that is the issue, which of course, many labs are already working to address. And I think once the safety issues are past us, uh, like IVF in the early days, then uh, we will be seeing more and more um, of this sort of technologies being utilised. Right, I agree with what you said, Prof. Safety should always be the priority. Alright, the last question of the day. Professor Mott, do you think we'll shy away from this technology or is the world ready for it? Um, I think if there are very compelling psychological and medical reasons for a couple or a person to try for an augmented baby or have gene therapy for a condition where there are no viable medical treatments or options, um, and it results in a better quality of life from the person, freedom from serious illnesses, I think people have a right to exercise their choice uh, if it's available, right? That is quite empowering. Um, but ultimately, I mean, as a species, uh, Homo sapiens, um, which can be the most beautiful yet the most destru destructive, I, we're already dealing with overpopulation. We're already dealing with the effects of climate change, ecological disaster. Now we're in the COVID-19 pandemic. 
species extinction, mainly other species that we have driven to extinction, and the ever-widening gap between rich and poor. So I think um, as much as I am very passionate about genetics and biotechnology and, and all the wonderful medical achievements and, and in now and in the future, we oftentimes need to take a step back and, and reflect on what is a good life and how we perceive a better future to be. Right. We really won't know what will become of this till the day comes. And by then, hopefully, the appropriate policies will be in place. So before we end our episode, do you have any takeaway messages for our audience? Um, not really. I suppose um, it's it's uh, being excited. It's, it's good to be, be being excited about what we can do as humans. Being looking forward to the future, where we'll be, we will be able to actually uh, make people's lives better, uh, tackle disease, uh, look at different ways of doing things. You know, so so these things are very exciting, and and it is, I think, despite uh, our failings and frailties as humans, I think if we approach it properly, uh, the future does look quite bright and and I would encourage people to go and educate themselves about science and and take charge of their own health right I believe that every child would benefit from a stem based education science technology engineering mathematics and and you know some bits of medicine very important to actually bring education and health to societies around the world right okay so I think that was a wonderful way to wrap it up in short, we've spoken about augmented babies, CRISPR-Cas9, and how it works, the implications of human germline modifications, as well as some of the concerns that the public might have, and what is going to happen in the future. I think that's all for today. Thank you so much, Prof, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us this afternoon. It's been a pleasure, Alexa and Xiaoying. You take care and stay safe. We would also like to thank our audience for tuning in. Feel free to drop us questions or feedback on our Facebook page, MMI Malaysia. Also, do follow us on Spotify and iTunes so you don't miss out on our podcast episode. Stay tuned for our next episode of MMI Podcast, Troubles Broken Through Honesty. Take care and stay safe.